Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 46 this morning. Psalm 46, it's on page 455 if you're using one of our Bibles we provide here. If you're looking for it in your own Bible, often you can find the Psalms by opening it in the middle of your your Bible text. Psalm 46. In kind of a strange way, this coronavirus has unified the world in that we all have something in common, maybe some measure of fear. And whether your fear might be a little more financially based or can you get basic supplies or if you have health fears or for some the fear of death, it's it's kind of a common theme right now. We can ask the question, why would God allow this? And um, it's a legitimate question. I'd have to say that the passage we're looking at today doesn't completely solve that, so sorry about that. But it does, I think, help us to understand how God might use times of fear. This is one example. You've faced many fears, I'm sure. But how does God use fear in our lives? So I'd like us to kind of just be pretty honest right up front and think about some of the ways that God might use fear in our lives. Fear might reveal my need to control. Have you noticed that sometimes? Uh, You know, you, you maybe can't even control your schedule in the coming weeks. You can't control your safety, you may feel. It shows our need, our desire we have to control. Sometimes fear reveals my anger when I can't control things. Have you found yourself getting angry in in some way during these last couple of weeks? And if you trace it back, that anger might come from fear because you can't control something. Fears can reveal our selfishness. Looking out for ourselves. Why, why do we hoard? We're thinking of ourselves. And it's natural, right? But can we be honest enough to say that maybe that's a character trait God wants us to look at? Fears can reveal our sense of entitlement. I have a right to see how this buck season is going to turn out. And now I may never know. March Madness, that's, that's an entitlement, isn't it? Vacation plans. More importantly, fears can reveal defects in my trust in God because, you know, we could, we could go our whole life saying, I trust God, I trust God, our money says in God we trust, but it's not until it's tested that it seems like we really know how much we trust God. So that's perhaps some of the downsides, and yet it's showing us what God might be teaching us. So let's think positively. Fear creates opportunity for sincere prayer. A lot of people believe in prayer, but it's something about when it becomes personal, our own fear is personal, that's when our prayers become more than just kind of a rote thing we say, but now they become a cry of our heart. Fear also creates opportunities for God to show me his faithfulness as I learn to trust him more. And that's probably what this this psalm does best, is to take our fears as an opportunity to watch God be faithful 
and grow our faith in his faithfulness. So that's why I'd like to walk through this psalm. And again, I'd urge you to uh, look at your Bible or uh, a Bible app, or if you're you're watching someplace, to just get up a, a, a good Bible program like BibleGateway.com or something where you can get your eyes on the text because every word, it seems, is important as God inspired it for us. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Selah. That little word selah occurs in the Psalms. You'll see it from time to time. It's probably used here simply as a musical notation because Psalms were songs that were sung. And it's kind of like a long rest. It's a pause, whether it's a measure or a whole line. And and it kind of has the impact of, think about it. We will not fear if the worst happens because God's our refuge. Think about it. A lot of people are thinking more about God than they had, at least, I think. And uh, probably more praying than normal. I can't help but think of some of the similarities between this and some of the past crises, or even perceived, if you go back to Y2K or uh, 9-11. It's almost 20 years now since some of that intense global fear of terrorism. You have no doubt in the last 20 years faced other personal fears. Uh, blood tests and MRIs, phone calls of accidents or tragedies, fears unique for you about your children, and now fears maybe about health, which forces us to realize we're all actually terminal. We just don't think about it too often. So what is God saying to us? He's saying, I will be your refuge and strength. A refuge, uh, the word that uh, the psalmist uses here in the Hebrew language means uh, in a common sense that a den or a cave where animals run. In Psalm 104, verse 18, it was where the rock badgers go. I thought that was a good Wisconsin reference. What is God saying to us in our anxieties? He says, I want to be the place you run to. What do you run to in times of fear? For many people, their security is wrapped up in in money. Others, it's friends. Others, it's maybe position or job. And all those kind of fall short. Everyone can afford toilet paper, but it might be hard to find it, right? No matter how much money you have. In a funny way, right? So God whispers to us in whatever fear it is and says, I want to be the place you run. And so if God could accomplish that in these days... Wouldn't that be an important shift? I'm your refuge, and I am your strength. <clears throat> we go to that which we perceive to be strongest. A couple of uh, historical references here. Anybody remember the 60s doing something like this? You're going to admit your age, or at least as old as me, because I remember being in second grade in Mrs. Suderman's class in Hillsborough, Kansas, and that's what we did. We had the, uh, the bomb drills, hiding under... A desk. 
Many more of you remember this. In times of fear that we faced because of 9-11. A couple weeks ago, I was in Kansas and uh, uh, driving on I-35, and I saw a billboard advertising um, bunkers. Uh, Kind of a budget bunker thing made out of a metal culvert. I don't know if it was this brand, but I found this one. Best deal in bomb shelters comes ready to bury. I'm not sure that's a great PR word for advertising, but doomsday bunkers. There's also, I saw an article that popped up there writing about it this week. Um, Luxury condo bunkers, which ironically were also found in Kansas, uh, where you could buy a whole floor for $3 million. All, not, not to mock, really. It's just simply to highlight how deeply our fear runs sometimes and what we might do because of our fear other than turn to God as a refuge and strength. Is there, is there a point at which we realize we cannot control everything? God says, the sooner the better. God is our ever-present help in trouble, verse 1 says. Ever-present. So he's present, and then he's ever-present, which is kind of like a, a multiplier to the word present. It's a, it's a superlative. He's very present. He's greatly present. He's exceedingly present. And really, you can't be more present than present, but it's like you should be so conscious of God's presence in trouble. He can't be more present than everywhere. There's a theological term for that, omnipresence. Omni, every, or all, and then present, all present, or everywhere present. Uh, Taught clearly in scriptures because God is infinite in all his characteristics. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. In other words, count on it. I am there. He's there whether we acknowledge him or not. He's there whether we're in a time of, of, of minimal fear and we're just doing great, or whether we're in a time of intense fear. He didn't change in his presence. He's there whether we are in a point of temptation or sin and we think he doesn't see. He's there if we're at a point of doing something good and we didn't think anybody noticed. He is there. So his omnipresence is something we can rely on and should be a reason why we don't fear. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, verse 2, Pointing back to verse 1, therefore we will not fear. The reason we will not fear is not because you might personally believe this isn't really so serious. The reason you will not fear is not because the CDC and the federal government can take care of us. The reason you will not fear is not because they've canceled all the major sporting events and and, and many other things, schools, etc., The the reason you will not fear is not because you have enough supplies. Because provisions and precautions will not settle our fears. The reason we will not fear is because God's our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. Present before the coronavirus was present, God was taking care of us 
in our fears. You've battled it long before. It's just that now it's highlighted because it's like the world is fearing in unison. So what could God be doing that's good if he reminds us that he is that ever-present help in trouble? Then, then it's really good for us to learn that. The psalmist in verse 2 uh, uses probably a literary device called hyperbole, poetic exaggeration. He's to make this point, what if the worst thing you can imagine happened? He describes it this way. We will not fear though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their certainty. He says, so visualize that the planet was like one of those snow globes and it just shook like this. And, and, and instead of just like two towers falling, then all the towers, all the houses, all the schools, all the church buildings, everything would, would topple. And Imagine the earth as if it's like an egg and you dropped it on the kitchen floor and it splattered everywhere. Imagine if, if somebody could come along and just scoop up the mountains and throw them into the oceans and the flooding, the splash would be so great that the entire planet was flooded. Just imagine the worst. That verse starts with, therefore we will not fear even if the worst happens. That's the assurance he is giving us. So that our faith in God would not be faith that the outcome will always be good, but our faith that God will always be good and faithful. So verses 1 through 3 remind us that he will remain with us faithfully, his presence Verses 4 through 7 teach us that he will be our stability. God is our foundation when our confidence in everything else is shaken. Uh, Notice as we go from verse 3 to 4, there is like this extreme opposite. There's this contrast between this violent imaginary shaking of the planet to this scene. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. or Yeah, fall. God will help her at break of day. So you go from this extreme turbulence on the earth to picturing yourself, let's say on vacation, in your most relaxed state. You're sitting on your favorite chair alongside a quietly bubbling brook and uh, the stress is gone you're on vacation you left all of that behind it's 72 degrees everything is great so imagine that in a place like this God says you will have peace not because the trouble is over this is still in the midst of trouble but that there is a place we go in time of trouble where there is peace. Now, this is an Old Testament setting where the picture is about the city of God, which, of course, refers to Jerusalem, the the center of, of Israel's worship. And specifically, this stream is in the city of God, Jerusalem, at the holy place where the Most High dwells. 
So, of course, if you understand your Old Testament, you know that God dwelt in a more localized sense in that era, and His place was in the holy place of the temple. So, where is their peace? It's in the presence of God. So, just as He promised in verse 1, God's an ever-present help. We can go to His presence And the idea is that we need to intentionally, deliberately, consciously practice God's presence. He is present. But because you can't see Him, He is so easily ignored, so we must practice that presence, as one book title put it. And there is where we will find deliverance. God will help her at break of day. So, if we flee to the presence of God in times of fear... Does that mean the trouble has gone? Not at all. Look at verse 6. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. But the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Think about that. So while the nations are panicking, God is at work taking care of us, verse 6 says. And that's, I mean, doesn't that sound like February, March 2020. Whether you think the world is overreacting overreacting or not, the world is in an uproar. And so we who understand and know God personally through Jesus Christ should be the ones who would create a distinction and a difference because we understand their fear if you don't know God, but do they understand our peace? Because we do. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Think about that. And so the the message I think of God to us individually is, are you distinct because of your relationship with God? The difference between you and those who are panicked is not whether or not you have health symptoms right now. The difference is not whether you are in a high-risk category or low-risk category. The difference is not where your money is invested or sitting right now. The difference is your view of God. The difference is to be our confidence in God, faith instead of fear, peace instead of panic. The only way that will happen is if we are absorbing ourselves In God's truth. Are you as absorbed in the truth of God during these days as you are in the daily news? If you were to think, how much did I read or listen to the news in these past weeks? And hold that alongside how much have I been thinking about or reading in in God's word? It's kind of like this, isn't it? We have to do something about that, and I think we have to make sure that we are absorbing ourselves in God's truth because our fear factor will depend on where we are focused. And we will, we will be able to uh, immerse ourselves in God's truth in two ways. One, obviously, is the Word of God. That's the only confidence. But the other is the people of God. Uh, I have been encouraged so often through the years by your faith with what you were individually going through because... I've had the opportunity uh, through the years to see how you have found refuge in God in times of illness, treatment, tragedy, 
divorce, job losses. Grief may be about your choices in the past, grief over the choices of your children, whatever it might be. You have become living proof of God's truth to me through the years. As a, as a pastor, I'm, I'm forced to preach a lot of truth that I could not possibly experience. Uh, especially, I think, when I uh, began ministry in my upper 20s. I was tasked, it seemed, to uh, preach about truth that there's no way in those few years I could have experienced. But you know what? I had then what I have now. God's truth and God's people. And that is where we will find truth to permeate and give us peace. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we, are we absorbing and investing in God's truth, his word, and in relationships with God's people? A uh, little commercial, I think it's providential that this coming Wednesday is when Pastor Seth is starting this uh, ministry program, kind of unique, called Just Read. Be gathering over in the, in the New Discipleship Center just basically to read. Bring, bring your Bible and, and, and uh, something to write and something to write on. And just kind of some guided reading of Scripture itself. It's not a Bible study, technically, but a chance to just kind of be accountable and, and find a place to, to invest in God's Word. We need God's Word. We need God's people. We've seen God's promise to be with us, His presence. We've seen His stability. We see He's that rock and foundation. Verses 8 through 11 begin to show us what God is doing. And what He's doing is He's revealing Himself. He's calling attention to Himself. Come and see the works of the Lord. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. There's a a war metaphor. Now verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Verse 8 we see first of all. Some past tense. Come see what God has done. Works of history are supposed to bolster our faith in, as we read the daily news. God has a very good record of faithfulness. Come and see. So he's calling for attention to himself. I, I trust that's working in this time. Desolations, the Hebrew word is wilderness. Um, God allows wilderness seasons. Rarely are they this global, but always they are personal. Some psalms have little uh, notes on the top of them describing the context or circumstance. Not a lot of them, but some do. This one does not, but it's interesting that through the years, quite a few Bible scholars have wondered in print whether there is a context historically in the Old Testament for Psalm 46. And the occasion that uh, keeps cropping up is whether this could be written at a time or really a celebration of God's deliverance from the Assyrian king Sennacherib 
the story we find in 2 Kings 18 and 19. And it's retold again by Isaiah because he's a key character. The reason they might think that is because of what we read in verses 4 and 5, where it's an issue of trusting God right there in Jerusalem, in the city, and being at peace in the city, and then God's deliverance that came suddenly at break of day. That would fit this context. Here's the story in brief. King Sennacherib of Assyria was the superpower, and he was besieging and circling Jerusalem, cutting off supplies and demanding that King Hezekiah of Judah would surrender and go captive with the nation to Assyria. And King Hezekiah, uh, trusting God, said no and told his people to trust God. So King Sennacherib responded by writing and sending an open letter for his servants to read to the people there in Jerusalem to create fear and to make them panic and make them succumb and force King Hezekiah's hand. It was a precarious moment. It's that moment where where our faith becomes real. So will we trust God or will we panic? And what do you do when you really want to trust God and there's a situation, however, you really cannot control? So we find that this is what Hezekiah did with the letter. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule you, the living God. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand. Why? So that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. As I read that this week, I thought, that's how you're supposed to pray. In any time of fear, any time your faith is tested, any time there's something you cannot control, you can never go wrong praying essentially, God, I realize how great you are. And I'm going to trust you based not on the circumstances. I'm going to trust you based on your greatness. And then ask. Tell him your, your fears. It's personal. It's you. It's, it's what you're going through. It's Sennacherib. Something very specific. And so he prayed. God sent Isaiah the prophet to Hezekiah after he prayed. And Isaiah told Hezekiah, God has heard your prayer. Don't worry. And Isaiah told the people, you were right to follow Hezekiah and put your trust in God. And then at break of day, they discovered one morning what God had done. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. I guess so. Because God delivered them, as verse 5 says, at break of day. God has full power 
to control what we cannot control to answer our prayers. So tell God you trust Him because you realize how good and powerful He is. Put your trust in the nature of God. And then ask. Ask, but keeping in mind and keeping focused on purifying your motives. Because we pray for relief from what we fear. Hezekiah did too. But he had the spiritual acuity to say, no, what I really want is that God would be glorified as he addresses my fears. And so that's the question. Is that what we want? That he would be exalted because we know that's what God wants. Uh, Probably some of you uh, were in the room here almost 20 years ago, the evening of 9-11-2001, where we gathered together, as many churches did, with an impromptu uh, prayer meeting. Uh, We prayed for safety. We prayed for peace. We prayed about our fears. We prayed for our country. Uh, all over the church, all over the world, uh, America, I mean, churches surged in attendance. We did too. In a good way, because we were reminded that we have to run to him as our refuge and that we are not in control. But have we really thanked God for answering in such profound ways that for the past 20 years, we have really experienced his grace as a nation in so many ways. Trust and pray. Verse 10 becomes the point of crescendo, I think. This is where it was going that we would trust God so that He would be exalted, verse 10. And you may have heard this verse before. Sometimes you find it on a plaque. It's a good one. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And then verse 11, like a musical chorus, repeats identically verse 7. The final refrain, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Think about it. There's something different about verse 10 from the rest of the verses in the psalm. If if you listen in English class, do you notice it? It's in the first person, that is, God is speaking directly. Everything, Everything else in this psalm is the psalmist talking about God and about the experiences. But this is God, like, interrupting the psalmist. God himself is speaking. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So he he says, "I, I was getting your attention. And now here's the message. Be still. The word is basically in the Hebrew about ceasing or stopping or being quiet. Be quiet. It's just, you use the same words, be quiet, whether you're maybe talking to a newborn baby or your eight and ten year old boys who come roughhousing, running, screaming through the house. You say be quiet to both of them. 
But you say it differently, don't you? To a newborn, it's like, be quiet, little one. <laughs> and uh, I won't even demonstrate what you might say to the uh, eight or ten year old. But you do say something about be quiet, right? The, the way this verse is written, this be still, be quiet, is in this emphatic position. We should probably hear it a little bit more like the eight and ten year old boy version. And God is saying, be quiet. Don't panic. Trust me. Make sure that you are pointing to me that I would be exalted. Be still and know I am God and I will be exalted. Because he's getting our attention. C.S. Lewis, the author and philosopher, and uh, we, we've got so many good things he's written. From a previous generation, he lost his mother when he was young. His uh, father was emotionally distant. He had a serious respiratory illness in his teen years, recovered sufficiently to serve in World War I where he was injured, but he came home and was married and lost his wife too early. And out of those experiences, he wrote the little book, The Problem of Pain. And there in that book, we have what are maybe his most quoted uh, words. It's about how God uses hard things. He says, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Is that what God's saying? Be still. Come on, be quiet and trust me. I will be exalted. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And probably we all need this psalm in some way today. If you have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I trust this is essentially a reminder of truths you know and have known. Others could be hearing this somewhat wishfully. I wish I could trust God like that. It could be that this is an opportunity for you to come to know God also in a very personal way through faith in Jesus Christ. Because I think among all the fears we have about this life, if there is a core fear, it is wondering about what happens after I die. And so we're reminded in a health crisis where we think about that more. And wouldn't it be just like a good God to use a time like this to assure us not only about taking care of us in this life, but to help us settle the eternal fear that some deal with? Do you know for sure that if you were to die today, you would be instantly in the presence of God himself in an eternal and wonderful heaven? Because God would want you to know that. And that settled issue would really have a huge impact on everything else because if you say, what, what if the worst would happen? To know that we would be instantly in the presence of God, it's just, it's something we should be thinking about throughout our life. 
To share a single verse that kind of wraps up so much of this, it would be John 3.16, often uh, proclaimed, even you might have seen it on football stands, since they're all closed these days, we will share it here. Because it really puts together the story of what God has done for us to settle that eternal fear. For God so loved the world, that's you and me. He truly loves everybody in the world. And this, this, is, this is a good time to think global. But when we think global, think personal. God so loved you that he did something for you. And what he did is he gave his only son. God's, God exists in the triune person of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he sent his one and only son, Jesus, who walked on earth. You can read the account of that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the end of each of those important gospel books takes us to the cross. When it says he so loved the world, it means that he paid for your sins on the cross. He didn't come just to to live a good life and we'd all have warm and fuzzy thoughts about him. Rather, he came to do the essential work that only he could do, that he would bear the penalty of our sin. Because what God did, what, what, what God's plan was, is that he takes the accumulated sin debt of the entire world and placed it on Jesus Christ because only Jesus Christ is sinless. We cannot pay for our own sins because we are flawed and sinful ourselves, but he put all of the sin of all the world upon Jesus Christ. And in that one crucial moment, God poured out his wrath on Jesus for your sin and mine. He became sin for us who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He bore our sin in our place. That having been accomplished, Jesus as he died says, it's finished. That is, the payment for sin is complete. As a result of what what happened on the cross, Our sin, your sin was paid for. That's the second half of the verse then. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, accomplishing that, that whoever believes in him, his son, who paid for your sin, and rose again to prove it was valid. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have instead eternal life. So your eternal destiny becomes settled, that you will be in heaven, not hell, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, who died for your sins and rose again. The word believe is not simply to believe that there was a God that created the world, there is a God somewhere, or there is Jesus, or that there really was a man who... It's not just believing that, it's believing in. The idea is, what are you trusting in, relying on for eternal life? The answer in this verse, as well as almost a hundred verses in the New Testament, is this word faith or believe. Are you trusting in Christ, who died for your sins and rose again? Or are you trusting in you? To trust in you comes out like this. You believe that you're good enough to earn heaven. That's trusting in you. You believe you've gone to the right church or done, done the right rituals, and therefore you should be in. That's trusting in you. The New Testament says you must trust in Christ, that he paid for your sins and rose again. So this is an opportunity I would urge upon you to decide in the presence of God and based on his word, 
to say, I am putting my trust in Christ alone. It means admitting that you need, you, you required the punishment of Christ for your sin. So you have to admit that you are a sinner. I'm a sinner. I realize, Lord, that I deserve your punishment, but I realize in your love you provided Christ to pay for my sin. And then to simply tell him, I'm putting my trust in Christ alone. Not me, not me, not Christ plus anything, Christ alone. And as you put your trust in him, he will give you eternal life. That's his promise. So I would urge you to make that decision or please feel free to contact me or someone at this church or someplace if, if you could speak with someone to make sure you have trusted in Christ for eternal life. And as you come into that relationship with him, he gives you confidence then to trust him with everything else. If he is taking care of the eternal issue, he can certainly handle everything else we face in this life. We're going to uh, take some time at this point to um, pray together. Our president has declared this to be a national day of prayer, and uh, we as a church family uh, of, of anyone should be focused on prayer. I'm going to ask Pastor uh, Nate to come now and lead us in this time of prayer. Just a couple of ideas to review a little bit. This is how we pray. We saw this. Tell God you trust him. Tell God you realize how powerful and good he is. And then ask him for deliverance so that he would receive the glory. And I'll also just put up on here a, a, a few suggestions, a starting point of some prayer ideas of praying for nations. There have been many who have experienced far more loss of life praying for those who are ill or fearful or grieving, for governing authorities. It's not fun being a leader at any level at this point. For your own personal wisdom, choices you have to make, for peace, encouragement, and trust in God. That's this crucial issue of Psalm 46. And then that we who have our confidence in the Lord would have a spiritual impact and that God would use this to point people to himself. Pastor Nate. Thank you, Pastor Sid. Um, we're going to open up the floor here just to pray together um, for anybody who would like to pray with us. And as you said, you put those suggestions up there, um, what to pray for. But as we're praying, this is not a prayer out of response of fear. I want to encourage that. This is a prayer out of response of where are we turning our eyes. Um, man, God, it says in the scripture, we read it this morning, for he is our refuge and our strength. And so what I what I do appreciate about seasons of little, I call them little blurps or whatever hiccups in our life, is it kind of like jolts us into where do we look, right? And so as we are um, just coming before the Lord this morning and praying, really exalting his name, you know, um, I just think about even the Lord's prayer, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we can come to the place and recognize who he is, I don't care if it's a virus or I don't care if it's your business is struggling, we can walk through and go, God, you are good. And so I wanted to open up the floor. If anybody would like to pray, um, I'm going to open us up. And uh, do I have a few um, men or women who are saying, hey, I would love to pray. Just raise your hand. As Even as I get done praying, I'll look up. Anybody wants to pray? And uh, raise your hand, and I'll come walk to you. All right? Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we just love you. You are so good. And I even think about that prayer you did that your son taught us. Father, we're heart in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. 
thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, this morning we pray that you will take care of our needs, both our physical and emotional and our spiritual. The Lord, we will look to you, understanding that you are the giver of life. And so this morning, whether we're in this room or we're watching on Facebook, Lord, I pray that we are looking towards you, recognizing who you are and keeping you as central to our heart, central to our mind, and our trust will be in you.